0: The High-Speed Bet by Robert Goddard It was a rainy afternoon in late November 1948. A party of four men had assembled around a table in the quarters of the Engineers Club of New York and were doing their best to neutralize dreariness with animated discussions. The properties of a new structural steel kept the ball of conversation rolling for a time. But the depression was not entirely overcome until the talk drifted to the topic of rapid transit. The leader of the conversation, Mr. Maurice Sibley, was preeminently a genius. He was not only a success in practical engineering, but some of his ideas were so far in advance of those of his contemporaries that he was called visionary. No one denied, however, that he could be highly entertaining. This afternoon he was at his best. His convincing manner and his forceful argument brought listeners from other tables, and to those who heard him, nothing seemed impossible. One of the men, however, Charles Adams, did not accept at all Mr. Sibley's statements of the wonders in rapid travel which would astonish the next generation. But he said nothing, Mr. Sibley finally raised the enthusiasm of his listeners to such a pitch that when he boldly declared that in ten years they would be able to travel from Boston to New York in ten minutes, no one replied but Mr. Adams. "'That's a good one, Maurice,' he said. "'Why don't you write it up? It would make a pretty good story.'" "'You'll not laugh,' said Sibley, "'when you take the trip yourself some day.'" Um, no, replied Adams, ironically. When I do. You may say what you please, but I know what I'm talking about, Sibley retorted. And I'll bet you $1,000 to a cent that ten years from today, you can make the trip in ten minutes. This was more than the rest of the party could stand, and everyone but Sibley shouted with laughter. Oh, Laugh a whole week if you want to, said Sibley, a little nettled, when he could make himself heard. But I mean it! The incident was not forgotten, and the high-speed bet, as it was soon called, remained a standing joke at the club for several weeks. Over nine years had passed, and each one had brought changes. There were changes in the fortunes of Sibley and Adams, Sibley had risen continuously and was still rising. Adams had gone the other way. He was in the plight of many professional men, men who really have ability, but who are so absorbed in their work that they neglect to think of what the world ought to pay for their services. Just now, he was considerably worried. He had borrowed heavily, so heavily that he could not risk what he had by borrowing more. And yet, if he did not, he could not give his son the postgraduate year in the engineering college as he had promised. It was surely a dilemma. But, Adams kept repeating to himself, there must be some way out of it. Cities had changed, as well as men. Boston and New York had grown with especially striking rapidity, and their boundaries were approaching each other. In fact, Changes had taken place to such an extent that there was a movement on foot to combine both cities into one municipality. One thing, however, kept the cities distinct. It was distance. And thus, rapid transit became the question of the day. The running time had been shortened again and again. Trains were running at the frightful speed of 180 miles an hour, but with great waste of energy and much danger the people were not satisfied. Greater speed with greater safety was their demand. Most insatiable were the rich and influential men. Now, where there are millions, there must surely be a way. Five years back, Maurice Sibley had come forward with a promise of shortening the running time and reducing the danger to a minimum if given complete control of the undertaking and backed by sufficient funds. The authorities, at first, refused to discuss such an unheard of thing, but Mr. Sibley, armed with his convincing manner and phenomenal reputation as a scientist and engineer, finally drove opposition to the wall. He promised nothing really definite, and so there began a period of guessing, which did not end until November 15, 1958, when the rapid transit tube was opened between New York and Boston running in almost an airline from one heart of the city to the heart of the other. At 9.15 on the morning of that memorable day, the party which was to travel in the first car assembled in the station near the old Boston Common. It was a gathering of distinguished engineers and public officials, with a few friends of those in highest authority. Maurice Sibley had asked our friend, Charles Adams, to be one of the party much to the latter's surprise. Excitement was at a high pitch when they descended by a flight of iron stairs to the level of the tube. Nothing very astonishing was seen, only part of a tube which looked like a large steam boiler, about 10 feet in diameter, across one end of the white enameled room with an opening in the side, large enough to admit one person, through which could be seen the illuminated interior of the car. One by one, they walked through the opening and seated themselves in the narrow, high-backed chairs. The interior resembled that of a Pullman car, but it was cylindrical in shape, with a narrow metal floor, and had no windows. It was evident that everything had been sacrificed for lightness and rigidity, but the most peculiar features were metal, box-shaped affairs near each end of the car, one overhead, and one on each side somewhat above the middle. After all were seated, Mr. Sibley walked to the forward end and addressed the party. Before we start, he said, I wish to explain, in as few words as possible, the plan which underlies this mode of travel. In the first place, there is a vacuum in this tube throughout its entire length. How to produce the vacuum was one of the most perplexing questions of the entire problem. It was finally obtained by first passing burning charcoal through the tube until all the oxygen had been converted into carbon dioxide and then passing upon rails which will be used hereafter only in case of accident cars supporting screens containing charcoal filling the bore of the tube throughout this charcoal ran pipes containing liquid hydrogen nearly all of the remaining gases were condensed in the pores of the charcoal even the inert elements, such as argon. The method by which air is prevented from entering the tube deserves mentioning. No gasket is used around the door through which you just entered. There is a plate of copper attached to the car, covered with a thin layer of a fusible alloy with a high electrical resistance. The tube is of iron at this point. Now, when we wish to fasten the car to the tube, we bring them together by suitable clamping and pass a strong current through the door encasing. The fusible alloy melts, the current is turned off, the alloy hardens, and then the door is opened, the car being electrically welded to the tube. In starting off, as you will see in a moment, the door is shut and clamped. The current passed through for a moment, then shut off, and the car unclamped from the tube and pushed away. You see, the alloy has a chance to cool in contact with the copper, which is not heated to such an extent as the iron. And when the car moves away, the alloy, which unites to some extent with the copper where it touches, clings to the cooler surface, namely, to that of the car. Just a word or so regarding propulsion, and we are off. From those metal boxes, of which you see three at each end of the car, there project strong electromagnets actuated by a number of specially constructed storage battery cells beneath the floor. The car is propelled, in brief, by the repulsion between these magnets and three rows of similar magnets placed in the sides and roof of the tube from one end to the other. The point of most intense magnetization of these magnets in the rows at the sides is a little farther from the car than the similar point of the side magnets of the car, the object being to prevent all pitching. The magnets vary in length, being longer near the middle of the tube. And although they require considerable power, this is furnished cheaply by a battery of wave motors off the Long Island coast. It does not require much investigation to see the wonderful capabilities of speed which this mode of travel offers. As the magnet at the sides of the car are strongly repelled by those projecting from the tube immediately below them, the whole car is lifted so that there is no material in contact with it. In fact, it would require considerable force to press the car down in contact with this row of magnets. But besides, the magnets in the tube just back of those mentioned are operated at the same time and these give the push which urges the car forward. You see that friction is utterly done away with, and that there is almost no limit to the speed that can be attained, provided enough power is at command. Of course, the current flows in the magnets of the tube only as we pass them, and this action is controlled by small governing magnets beneath the floor at each end of the car. They operate little clutches, which close the circuits of the magnets in the sides of the tube, and also the circuits of those in the row on the roof of the tube when the car moves too high. But you will see for yourselves how this works in practice. He motioned to an official who stood beside the door. The man shut the door, clamped it tight, and then switched on a current of electricity, but only for a moment. Then he pulled a long lever And the car moved sidewise with a slight jar. Mr. Sibley started a machine which purified the air and replenished the oxygen. It set up a slight draft through the car. With one hand he held his watch and with the other turned a small hand wheel. Just 20 minutes of 10 gentlemen was all he said as he hurried to his seat beside Mr. Adams. Scarcely had the wheel been turned when everyone was jerked backwards, just as when a car starts suddenly. But it did not stop, and they were forced against the backs of the seats with a continuous pressure. After a few minutes, the backward pressure ceased. All the chairs turned on pivots in the floor until they faced in the opposite direction. Once more, the same pressure was experienced, but this time, it acted toward the other end of the car. Mr. Sibley, in explaining this to Mr. Adams said, it is really the simplest thing in the world if you remember those old formulas for accelerated motion. The pressure against the backs of the seats is simply due to a forward acceleration of 11.6 feet per second each second. This makes the velocity increase until, at the middle of our journey, we are traveling with a velocity of 3,500 feet per second. Then we reverse the chairs and gradually slow up until we reach New York. Even while he was explaining this, the pressure ceased and the car seemed to be running on rails. At last, it stopped. Mr. Sibley opened his watch and startled everyone by saying, I hope all are satisfied, for we have made 200 miles in 9 minutes and 57 seconds. While the official was welding the door casing to the tube and opening the door, Sibley received a perfect shower of congratulations from every side, and as the party stepped into the New York station, shouts of excitement were heard outside the building. But Sibley escaped from the uproar by the stairway as soon as he could. As he passed Adams, he thrust an envelope into the latter's hand, much to the astonishment of everyone. Adams. In surprise, hurriedly opened it and found ten $100 bills. For a brief moment, he was speechless. What good fortune! He had a chance now of recovering what he had lost, and he could do what he had promised his son without anyone's being the wiser for what had happened. But then, remembering the nature of the bet, he called up to Sibley. Here, Maurice, I can't take this. Why?" It wasn't a real bet at all. And besides, it is I who lose. Oh, a voice from the landing called back. Don't take the trouble to refuse, Charles. It'll not do the least bit of good.